Hey everyone, welcome to this week's Digital Foundry Direct Weekly. Uh, it's the kind of weekly discussion show where we chat about the news, talk about the projects we're working on, and of course, take questions from our Patreon supporters. So, joining me this week, John Linneman. Hey Rich, how's it going? <laughs> Absolutely fantastic. Uh, a lot to get through, so I'll oh, quickly yeah. shift on to our second contributor, Alex Batalia. Hey there, Rich. Had my caffeine in this very interesting little mug here, and I'm doing well. <laughs> it's nice to see that we're all fully on brand this mm-hmm. week. That's right. Uh, we're showing Shane... our own brand. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let's get to it. Let's talk about the news. Um, last week, which is kind of this week as we uh, film it, mm. um, Microsoft announced the latest wave of FPS boost titles for Xbox Series X and S consoles. And it's a fascinating one because I suspect the majority of the audience probably won't see any benefit from them. (laughs) But for those who have 120 hertz capable displays, it's party time. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I mean... Let's talk about the titles, first of all. We've got all of the Battlefields, mm-hmm. uh, 1, 4, and V, 5. Uh, we've got both of the Battlefronts. We've got all of the Plant vs. Zombies games and um, a couple of others. But I guess the most exciting from my perspective was Titanfall 2, which is now fully armed and operational at 120 hertz. Uh, so, John, what do you reckon? Well, let's not forget Mirror's Edge Catalyst. Oh, baby. Oh, of course. Yeah. yeah. That's a that's another... I mean, I'd take that over any of the Battlefield games. But <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, Titanfall 2 is kind of a big one for me. And I haven't really had much of a chance to play with this yet as of recording mm-hmm. this. But uh, Tom shared a bunch of his footage. And it's looking great. I mean, I love to see these kind of upgrades because 120 hertz is a huge deal. And applying that to last generation games is a kind of a smart move because uh the power is there to push them up i'd say pretty high Mm -hmm. and yeah i mean most of these games are pretty fast paced as well so they really would benefit from this increased uh, output so Mm. um you know i the only the only downside is some of these games you know you have like battlefield 4 uh and even mirror's edge and a few others that they're limited to the original resolution, I believe, which is, you yeah. know, they never received 1X enhancements. So they're all sub 1080p. And Battlefield 4 is just straight 720p. Yeah. Very poor anti aliasing. Yeah. But I think, Rich, isn't there something with um, these games and like the resolution varying from what they are normally? Yeah. So that is an interesting point. And uh, I think uh, before we get onto that, it's worth pointing out that there is actually a differential here between Series X and Series S. Oh, so right. of all of the titles mentioned, uh, we've got Battlefield 1, 4 and 5 at 120 hertz on Series X, but only Battlefield 4 at 120 hertz on Series S. Um, so, yeah, it kind of makes sense. It's where, yeah. you know, the, the horsepower just isn't there. Um, and so the games that aren't running at 120 hertz uh, on Series S, it is the Battlefield 1 and 5, uh, Mirror's Edge Catalyst, which uh, is a bit of a disappointment, I guess. Yeah, that's a shame. Uh, Battlefront 2 and Titanfall 1, weirdly that's enough. That's weird. Yeah, Titanfall 2. Is <sighs> Titanfall 2 is. Well, Titanfall 1 is like, one. what? Isn't that 
with four times MSA seven nine two P. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I wonder if it's literally just because it's using MSAA uh, uh, at that resolution, which would drop the uh, which would drop the frame rate because the GPU is the thing getting yeah. in the way there on Xbox Series S, which is why Battlefield One at seven twenty P can just be fine while Battlefield. Uh, what I said, Battlefield 4 at 720p should be fine, but other titles should not. Um, it, is a little, right. it is a little curious, though, that, um, I don't know, that Series X, we were looking at some of the uh, frame rate things here, is I'd imagine on Series X, if they, if, do we know if they can do like the high chi method or whatever it's called, uh, essentially the upscaling of games like they've done for the backwards uh, compatibility catalog sometimes, uh, um, increasing the resolution to 4x or 9x of the original. Do we know if that's possible on third-party developer titles from the Xbox One series? Sure. Yeah. Um, I, I don't yeah. see any reason why not, because it's at the system level. Mm -hmm. But the We've never method... seen this yet, though. Like we've, You and I saw it, Rich. They demonstrated yeah. it to us. But I don't think any titles released so far, like Xbox One titles, have received this boost yet. Yeah. yeah I think you know when we're looking at um, the Xbox One X titles mm -hmm. that are boosted to 120 hertz, on Series X, they're running at uh, what Microsoft describes as a slightly lower resolution. We've not actually done the measurements as of this filming, but it, it looks to me like it's almost like an either-or thing. There is a horsepower limit in back-compat mode. So actually getting both uh, 4X resolution and 2X yeah. frame rate could be quite challenging, <laughs> I think. I was thinking more for like the Battlefield uh uh, for a situation where right. it's 720p and four times that, 1440p at 120 hertz on that big GCN uh, kind of back compat mode. It seems reasonable, but mm. you know. Yeah, yeah, I'd say it's a reasonable. I just like how you said big GCN. Now I'm thinking big Navi. That's the... We never got big GCN, did oh, we? It would have been horrible. <laughs> we never did. <laughs> well, I think we, uh, I think we had some uh, contenders there. Yeah. yeah, Radeon 7 is. is... Oh, yeah. <laughs> Fairly large GCN, mm -hmm. should we say? Yeah, almost big. <laughs> almost big. But you know, I'm just really excited to see uh, these titles running at 120 hertz, and I'm also happy to see that there's some level of uh, forward-looking uh, compatibility here. Not everyone at the moment has 120 hertz access on their TVs, but you know, give it a couple of years, and it's going to be a standard feature on new sets uh, across the board. The thing, Rich, though, I guess the, the, the point to keep in mind, though, is that 120 hertz has actually been more widely available than I think we might realize. Is like, monitors? Uh, going all the way back to like the LG B7 series and up and a lot of other LG, Samsung and other brands, they've all supported 120 hertz at 1080p or in some cases 1440p without HDMI 2.1. Mm -hmm. So I feel like at the very least, it's it's reasonably accessible. Anybody that bought a TV in the last four years probably has this capability. Well, you say that, John, but it's going to be people who bought a high-end set or a mid-range to high-end set in the last four years. Yeah. If it's, you know, if they bought like a, a sort of entry-level 4K screen, they won't have that. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, it depends. Some of the lower-end ones do as well. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it is, it's a little bit mixed. But I also feel like, you know, at this point, I'd imagine that I'd love to see the numbers actually on what percentage of the people buying the new Xbox Series X or something actually have a 
mid to high end TV. You know, the, mm. Microsoft surely has access to these metrics through their um, kind of like internal yeah. diagnostics. Uh, you know, you can choose sure. to like with Windows or with Xbox how much information you want to send back. It's one of the options I think you can click on the setup. So that they probably know. I would love to know. Yeah. Well, they've known this for years. There was. Uh, uh, I think a stat that Cliffy B came with back in the day where he shared that Gears of War on Xbox 360 was mostly played on standard definition displays, which is entirely consistent with, you know, the, how the market would have been at that time. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of yeah. telemetry that's sent through your console back to, to base that we just don't know about. And I'd love to see. <laughs> and I guess it's the same for stuff like GeForce Experience and uh, on um, the NVIDIA side, on the PC side. But yeah, I'd love to see that data. Maybe one day it shall be shared. But yeah, in the meantime, FBS Boost. Um, I'm really looking forward to seeing more. There are a couple of titles here, or actually specifically uh, one by the look of it. Sea of Solitude, that gets um, boosted to 60 hertz. I've never played that one, so I assume it was 30 hertz when it launched. Um, but no yeah, idea. 13 EA Play titles, FPS boosted. And um, Tom's going to be looking at uh, some of the metrics there. I played Titanfall 2 at 120 hertz last night, ran it through capture, did frame rate analysis on the fly. 120 hertz start to finish throughout the entire info mission, uh, which is really exciting. So good stuff. Got 120 hertz screen. There's a lot of love here for, for you from Microsoft, and that's good stuff. Okay, so let's move on. Uh, second news item, um, I can he hear the rejoicing of John Linneman here. Sony <laughs> is keeping the Vita and the PlayStation 3 digital stores open. So, John, I've got to get your reaction on this. I mean, that's, I'm, I'm genuinely surprised and very happy to see this. And uh, to me, it just demonstrates why it's important to when the consumer base has an issue with something like this make your voice heard because clearly companies do listen uh they don't always respond but in this case they did and um yeah i mean i've talked about this before i'm a big collector of physical games but there's a lot of digital exclusive games on these machines and i think keeping them accessible to people to allow them to purchase especially in vita where there were still games in development yeah uh i know for sure that some people are some companies are still seeing sales of of recent games on there but you know i'd like them to get it to a place where they can just leave this stuff online without too much of an investment on the back end and just kind of keep it going it is uh, um, it is curious though why the psp store could not be saved when something I, is so small I as the ps3 or vita one could i assume that the psp store it comes from such a different time you know what i mean and yeah that uh, i could see technical reasons for it because i think already it was like something where you couldn't access the store on psp anymore hmm. as it is you had to use a ps3 to do it and then like connect it via usb <clears throat> but psp itself aside from the go was never that digital to be honest and the mo nearly every game came out on umd so um but the other the other systems ps3 is when they really went digital and i i think it's important to keep that stuff available and also um, basically, you know, it kind of fights back against this concern over things closing on us, although it shows that it could definitely happen at any point, but, uh, they cared enough to stop it this time. And that's, that's good. 
Mm. I'm just I'm just <laughs> concerned that it's like a stay of execution. Yeah, <laughs> I guess that's the big that's the big worry. I wish there was some way to like you. I don't know. I don't know what their back end looks like. I'm sure one of the reasons they wanted to get rid of this is because it's all very old code and server stuff running in the background that they didn't want to keep. And I'm sure there's issues with you know accounts and there's already two factor authentication is slightly tricky with the PS3. Uh, but still, I I don't think they'd invest the money into it. But I'd love to see them sort of like refresh the store itself on those platforms and make it sort of more functional within a new framework or something. I don't know. But either way, I'm happy to see it for now, and I hope it remains open for years to come. <laughs> yeah, I think there's just got to be... You know, I've got no problem at all with the uh, the stores closing down as long as there is a preservation mechanism. And there was no plan for this, as far as I could see. You could still download your purchases... Uh, which is fair enough, but how long is that going to work for? And yeah, and and you know, just the I think there needs to be some kind of long term vault plan, if you like, you know, to to basically make sure that there is accessibility to those titles, um, even if you know, because let's face it, these storefront code, it's going to go wrong at some point. Engineering effort is going to be needed to to get it working again. The people who devised the code might not even be working at Sony anymore. So you've got this huge um, sort of legacy um, uh, debt, technical debt to take care of. And I suspect that was one of the reasons why it was scheduled for the chop. But, you know, I, I just can't help but feel that um, on the one hand, it is a stay of execution and that, it, you know, give it a couple of years, we'll be back in the same position again. And there's got to be more of a long-term plan in in preserving what is an absolutely remarkable catalogue of titles. And, you know, I'll put it to you that if a bunch of hackers out there can <laughs> can can do it, so can Sony. So I think um, sort of leading on to that news, um, there's been a lot of talk about um, potential issues with the PlayStation 4, perhaps even the PlayStation 5, um, about the fact that games could just stop working uh, in a series of conditions, if a series of conditions are met concerning the CMOS battery. So maybe you can talk us through that, John. Yeah, so this applies to PlayStation 3, 4, and 5. And the, the essential notion is, and it's slightly different between them, I should note, uh, is that when the CMOS battery dies and you change it, or if you don't change it, essentially the, the system needs to authenticate with a time server to set the time. And the, the theory, from what I recall, and maybe this is actually a known thing at this point, is that it's tied to the trophy system and to prevent cheating. Uh, right. And like keep them synchronized if you're playing offline. So it might be connected to that. But the, the, the idea is like, let's say your PS4 battery dies, you replace it, bring it back up. Uh, the server's gone, let's say theoretically. Um, which is actually the real concern or you can't connect it right away basically if it can't authenticate then what that means is that you won't be able to play any content on your ps4 disc or digital whereas on playstation 3 i believe it's um discs work no matter what uh but digital stuff does not which we saw during that one um the apocalypse with the uh, <laughs> ps uh, you know 
it's that kind of situation. And then I think on PS5, it's actually mixed where digital stuff is not working. Somebody tested this by uh, disconnecting the battery, actually. It should be noted. None of them have died yet on the PS5. But they noted a digital stopped working and some discs worked, some discs did not. It was kind of split. So it's kind of uncertain what's going on there. Yeah. Um, and bat- batteries are, they're an unfortunate thing. They, they've caused, batteries cause so many long-term problems for preserving old hardware and any machine that has had batteries in it. Anybody that works with old PCs or old machines that have this stuff knows that one, um, you know, certain types like the barrel style batteries can cause corrosion and damage the hardware. So that's bad. These disc style batteries usually aren't too bad for that, but um, they can take out system functions. Like on Sega Saturn, when your battery dies, you lose all saves. Uh, which is bad uh, unless you have like a ram cartridge but they have a changeable compartment in the back uh, the cdi has, right. a, has a battery built into an ic the timekeeper chip and when that thing dies uh like you literally have to dremel open the chip and then like remove the battery and then reconnect it with new terminals it's a huge pain in the butt wow. whereas on the ps3 and upwards it now it just seems like all of this is just tied to essentially restricting access to software and as far as I know, the the one solution around it right now, at least, is to jailbreak the system, and that's yeah. it's good at that 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 is an option. But I feel like that shouldn't have to be an option. And you know, people are saying this isn't a big deal, no big deal. These batteries last for a long time, and they can. I've seen PS4s already die, PS3s for sure. Some of them last longer. PS2 already PS2 has a battery as well. When that dies, you just lose the clock, but that's pretty much it. Um, but I, I would love Sony to come up with some sort of solution here to some sort of a failsafe or a fallback to ensure that you don't actually need this server connection to bring the system back up online. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's invalidate trophies when when if you get a trophy when you're in the state, maybe don't allow it to you know persist or something like that. But I feel like just for the for the good of the future of these platforms, it would be very very nice to see them actually sort of try to solve this now and that's why it's being raised right now because it's not yet a problem but it absolutely could be we know now what happens when this occurs so it's the time is now to to act Mm, i think it's basically uh there's a specific issue with um the playstation consoles but a general issue is that I think nobody has really thought about what happens when these servers aren't there anymore. And, and by the going, way, Rich, this is also applies a to Microsoft, of course. Yeah, yeah, Microsoft has their own issue there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, that's this one's a little different, but it's you know if you try to get a new machine or you do a factory restore on an Xbox, it also needs a server before you can bring it back up, and that has not been hacked. It's basically a paperweight. So both companies have to deal with this. Most consumers aren't going to care. They're not going to see it. They think that we're crazy for talking about it. But anybody that's into preserving this stuff to to play in these games long term, like this is this is important things. They need to consider what happens if and possibly when I don't know these servers go offline. This is a this mm. is a hard one though. I almost feel because there's already all of these consoles out there that were manufactured with the baseline software that requires these checks. And if these things yeah. are never updated, that means uh, like if they never update the hardware software integration on the Microsoft side for, for years, like let's say three years now, and then they get rid of this uh, online activation time check server update thing, 
uh, that means all the councils before then will still have this problem. Uh, yep. I, I, I actually don't know what they do. Same thing with the Sony side, technically. Um, it feels like that should never have been there in the first place. Like if I that's why they got it. The sooner they act, the better. Yeah, now. they needed because the, the clock is ticking. They needed to do it really quickly. If I had a PC hardware that had any of these problems, I mean, yes, there are technically like online authentication things for certain programs, but that's very different than the hardware bricking itself. Uh, yeah, um, that's a different thing. Um, so I don't know. I really hope they move really quickly on both sides, and we should. I think periodically keep bringing this up because it's. I think it's a really big deal. But yeah, yeah, I think it is just basically. You know, I can go onto, for example, uh, eBay or Facebook Marketplace. I could buy an Atari VCS, and it's just going to work. You know, this is like late seventies technology. I've got no problem with it working. But you know, it's there. I can go out and grab it, and it will just work. Now, if we apply the same kind of time scale, you know, the same sort of forty-year gap for the consoles of today. Are they going to work? Hmm. I I wouldn't put money on it. That's the thing. That is why preservation is so important. Yeah, the last the last ones I think that would work just straight away is something like the Wii. <laughs> the, 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 the Wii? Wii? That little controller? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe the Wii U. I mean, that's trickier because it has that gamepad with the extra battery in it, but you can still plug it in. I think that's fine. And the Switch technically I don't think has any of these authentication issues. Uh, its problem is that it has an internal battery, and when that dies, the system cannot be started. So we need right. to figure out a solution for the battery problem on that as well. And maybe somebody already has. I haven't looked into it lately, but that's a separate thing. Yeah, and of course, there's a huge digital footprint on the Switch to the point where there's physical games that require downloads for you to get all the content. So That's true. Though that stuff's usually, fortunately, still marked, so you know from the package yeah. if it's actually a useful thing or not. Yeah, but it is a crazy thing, though. The Switch has been hacked. And, <laughs> and, and therefore, I'm not particularly concerned about preservation on the Switch. No, it's just it's but, just about keeping the hardware running long-term yeah, yeah, more than anything else. And okay. that's, you know, it, it's but, looking mostly good. But I think the actual news that there was for this item was, that, oh, yeah. <laughs> going back to the news, was Sorry. that <laughs> Sony is reportedly looking into the CBOS issue. Uh, it well, it did look like, you know, tracing that back to the source, it did look like a, you know, um, yes, we're looking at it, please go away kind of response. But fingers crossed that it's not, that it is being taken seriously. Mm -hmm. And, you know. Well, if, if they reopened the PS3 and Vita store, well, more like never closed it in the end. <laughs> they reversed decision on that. It's pretty clear that they're looking at community feedback right now. Mm. And so this is our, our best hope for this kind of thing. Yeah. So they are actually aware that people are concerned about this and act on it and if they actually find a way to solve this then it's good for everybody okay well let's move on to the next topic and uh, we're going to be talking about uh, some of the more uh, developer orientated uh, events that have been happening mm -hmm. uh, last week we talked about nvidia gtc we're going to circle back to that shortly because there was stuff we didn't cover um, but we had game stack this week game stack <laughs> live <laughs> And um, yeah, some interesting stuff there. I guess there uh, was Microsoft talking about, I think it was the Agility SDK. Yeah, that's the cool thing that for me, from my perspective. Um, the other things are cool mm. there too, but the Agility SDK um, for uh, PC side, and it does have an effect on Xbox as well, of course, is that 
uh, essentially before and since the dawn of DirectX, <laughs> other than like a, a CD install, um, you would essentially have to update Windows to take advantage of new DirectX features. Uh, usually. And now with this uh, Agility SDK covering a, a DirectX 12 Ultimate and the new Shader Model 6.6, uh, developers can essentially ship you the DX update with their game code instead of having to wait for users to just, whenever they want, update Windows. Uh, so this means with every game release, a developer can now take advantage of the latest versions of DirectX and all the advantages that it has. And you know, like DirectX 12 Ultimate or Shader Model 6.6, they are going to end up being huge things. Um, so new games don't have to worry about legacy users for essentially forever now. And it's really great. And this will mean specifically, I think for at first Microsoft products, specifically like their first party studios, like 343, uh, The Coalition, and um, you know any of their other ones, uh, that when they ship a new game uh, in the next like two years, that we're gonna see the latest DX12 features in them regardless of anything, uh, because they now know they have a perfectly big install base. And this is great for Xbox users that because that means technically, uh, the PC user base will not be dictating the amount of high-end features that are going to be put into Xbox games because sometimes it's always like that fear of parity. Like, do we really want to develop all this, uh, spend this time developing a feature that can only be used in the Xbox Series version and like a couple of PCs? Well, no, they don't have to worry about that anymore because all Xboxes, Series Xboxes, and all PCs now will just get it due to the fact that agility exists. So this is, I think this is excellent. Um, I guess the other kind of thing that was, there was a lot of things that were talked about at the GameStack Lab. I have not watched them all yet or because I've been busy with something behind the scenes, which people will see hopefully in this upcoming week when you watch this video, um, that the, they announced, or it was a couple of demonstrations for AMD's fidelity effects on series consoles, Rich. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it looks as though they're bringing over a lot of the GPU open stuff that AMD has done onto Xbox. And uh, initially I was kind of uh, confused by this <laughs> yeah. because by by its very nature, GPU open is open. So, you know, if you wanted to take something from Fidelity Effects and put it in your Xbox game or your, or indeed your PlayStation 4 game, yeah. you could take that code and then do the port yourself. I can only assume that um, elements of Fidelity Effects uh, that may benefit from specific hardware features or, mm -hmm. or APIs within uh, the Xbox-specific uh, hardware and software stack uh, is actually more easily accessible now, which makes more of these uh, features more kind of plug-in and play. Yeah. And we actually get quite a lot of um, people asking why we don't talk <laughs> more about fidelity effects. Yeah. And uh, there is often a kind of... Um, uh, confusion there's there's like parrot you know people are lumping in fidelity effects alongside rtx features on the nvidia side but they're two very different things so maybe you can clear that one up yeah amd's fidelity effects uh, as a part of gpu open is a variety of plug and play uh, post-processing effects usually. Um, so there is a uh, denoiser for like reflections and shadows. There is a VRS tier two implementation, which is pretty great. Um, and there's um, like uh, screen space ambient occlusion, screen space reflections, uh, 
fidelity effects sharpening, uh, like uh, contrasted after sharpening. And in the future, they will be keep adding presumably more of these things. And one of them will end up being the equivalent of a deep learning super sampling uh, uh, competitor from the AMD side. Uh, and we, you know, we'll have to wait and see what that's like. But that's essentially what this is, this plug and play package of post-processing effects that developers can use uh, for at will if they want for their games. And actually, we've already seen uh, the benefits of this, uh, not just on Xbox consoles, but we've also seen it on PlayStation ones before uh, in the past. Um, what was it called? TressFX essentially was like a slight precursor to this. And TressFX found its way into PlayStation titles. It found its way technically into Horizon Zero Dawn. Uh, you know, it's it's been used before. But the reason why I guess this is interesting that it was uh, kind of brought into GameStack Live and announced here is because like Rich was saying, these are Xbox series tailored versions of these effects that will take advantage of RDNA 2, like the tier 2 VRS, for example, which uh, will obviously only work in the DirectX environment because they have the API for this and the hardware support. Um, so that's the, the cool thing of, about that. Um, in the future, I... One interesting yeah. thing, Alex, I saw, um, I, I assume that this is just a general, but it, it, in the credits for uh, Resident Evil Village on the PS5 demo, they referenced several fidelity effects features such as contrast adaptive sharpening. And I, I guess I was a little bit confused as to whether this was just covering the game as a whole and specifically only applies to specific nah. versions or if this is actually part of the PS5 this version is, as well. It's going to be totally be in the PS5 version. I'm pretty sure as well, if you look at Marvel, Marvel's <laughs> Avengers, uh, they use Fidelity Effects uh, CAS on PC. I'm very positive of that. And if you go to the console versions on every single version in the menu, I think there's a sharpness option there that you can toggle it's probably and that, i'm pretty sure it? it's cas if it's not yeah, it's like what's the probably point? right um so exactly yeah th that just means they had to adapt the code for cas to work with um the playstation version so they had an extra step there probably maybe it was machine translated maybe it was actually you know manually done who knows but uh this is just good because it's automated essentially there's already made versions of this for xbox consoles that's cool. Mm -hmm. Well, this is interesting stuff because I do think there is going to be a um, uh, an implementation phase for RDNA two features yeah. um, because we're not seeing a whole bunch of them at the moment, and Microsoft are probably thinking to themselves, "What can we do to actually spur more people to use um, stuff like Tier Two VRS and you know stuff that the Xbox console definitely has." and that developers may not naturally gravitate towards because it's not within PlayStation 5. Yeah. So it's, um, it's, it's a good call to actually um, not just uh, do that, but also to unify it across PC and, uh, and Xbox as well. Yeah, it's a similar to, um, I guess, NVIDIA wanting to take advantage of the advantages they have in software and hardware by making DLSS uh, more approachable, easily plugged in, uh, like they did with 2.1 or 2.0, as well as releasing as part of UE4, and as well as kind of them having their own suite of uh, denoisers. The difference, though, that should be uh, noted, and I think it's very good that AMD does this, is that this is open source stuff. So it's, uh, you know, there's no needs of, no need to license or anything like that. I just saw um, on Twitter this morning, or was it yesterday evening? I can't remember now. But uh, uh, our good friend whose last name I cannot pronounce so easily, Tomasz 
Hmm, who also worked on like uh, Alien Isolation and also was for a while at Frostbite and I think now is, I can't remember his name. I'll, I'll send the, 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 the link to Audi. It was basically showing immediately after this was announced at GameStack Live, uh, uh, he went into his toy renderer, which is a ray tracer and has like uh, a lot of really cool elements in it. Um, plugged in the <clears throat> shadow denoising code within like two oh, hours yeah, and got that. it working. Uh, so yeah. this is powerful, and it's it's you know it's going to be cheap. It's going to run well, presumably. Uh, who knows how well it runs across different hardware types because it is obviously an AMD effort, but it's it's just easy to do, and that's really great. And he had no problem with it. There was no licensing phase or anything like that. That's something I think at times Nvidia really should try and learn from, and I do hope to see yes. that um, for certain RTX things in the future. Like I, it's it's very unreasonable. I don't think they'll do it, but I really think DLSS should go open source to a certain degree because. Regardless of what happens, it, you know, NVIDIA will have the hardware advantage to run DLSS at the best quality, at the best performance. That's really all that matters. Uh, people are still going to care about DLSS for NVIDIA, but then it'll allow other users to see what the advantages of that are and maybe you know, also be able to run it too and see. It'll just you know, make innovation a little bit better too because maybe then there could be iterations on DLSS outside of NVIDIA. Uh, I don't know, just, you know. Do we have any ETA on when uh, AMD's um, competitor for DLSS this year. is set to arrive? It's this year? <laughs> yeah. Sometime? <laughs> Could mean anything, really, uh, yeah. but this year, apparently. All right. Yeah. Cool. Mm. I, I agree with you, Alex, about DLSS. I mean, it's just been integrated into um, modern warfare, uh, war, war zone, uh, war zones, war zones specifically, I think, uh, which is... Um, which is a, a really big deal, and it's gaining traction. Uh, last week, we talked about how it was integrated now at the uh, nuts and bolts level into Unity. And arguably, DLSS is getting far more take-up than DirectX 12 Ultimate features. Well, it's, it's, it's not even up for discussion. It's huge. And, um, you know, all of the big innovations historically in the PC space have been open. Uh, you know, uh, they have been set at the API level. And to lock out hardware on something that's so profound, um, obviously, it's, you know, it's happy days for NVIDIA because it means there's going to be a lot of RTX cards uh, shipped. And it is a great feature. And I can't take away the... the technological achievement you know that you know the effort that went into this this wasn't just something they imagined <laughs> no. up out of thin air it was like five years worth of research yeah, and development true. you know and you look at they should yeah, you look at the nearest competitors like facebook reality labs is trying to create a dlss solution and it's so much more expensive on the, like their implementation and it is you know uh, has less quality and all these other things like nvidia mm. is like so far ahead. So them wanting to leverage their competitive advantage by making it exclusive from a software side, it makes sense. But it, I do hope like years down the line, two maybe, or something like that, maybe three years that we do see this, you know, come uh, into a more open source uh, area. I would like that. I guess we should round off the stuff uh, from GTC because yeah. that was ongoing uh, during last week's filming. Yeah, there's a there's a number of things to talk about here. I did watch the Crytek presentation about integrating RTX features and the, uh, I do recommend a lot of people watch that just to kind of get a sense of how easy it is to integrate DLSS or not. 
as well as, especially in a really old, you know, game like Cry Crisis, even the updated version is based on something that was made in 2007. So that was interesting. Um, other than that, there was a uh, Minecraft RTX presentation that was also, I believe, given at GameStack Live uh, from Ollie Wright, who I talked to. Oh, uh, yeah, and Ollie, you know, he's, yeah, great, he's yeah. really wonderful, and his presentation was charming and really, uh, uh, you know, informative. And the Minecraft RTX presentation—they've already talked about it a lot in the past, so they were really talking about like the integration of like how they did all these different things. But no, this one was very specific about I would almost say like the theory behind what the heck denoising is. Like, it's really hard to get a grasp of what denoising is and how it works. And when everything's path traced, uh, and you know, even the primary geometry is ray traced in uh, something like Minecraft, uh, it takes on like a whole new, you have to think about why the game looks the way it does. And it was a really interesting talk mm -hmm. uh, to, you know, grasp what the heck denoising is and why there's like certain problems like the fact that a tiny uh, little bright light is one of the worst things in denoising. Uh, so it, it's just like a lot of fun to watch through that. And another uh, really great presentation uh, that was very developer focused um, and also kind of charting a sort of history of the way a game was developed was uh, Rebellion North talking about their road uh, to bringing, what is it, Sniper Elite 4 to the Switch. And they have like a kind of a longer history of bringing a number of games to the Switch. And the interesting part of this is that each time the project became more ambitious due to the scope of the game being bigger in some sense of the word. Uh, so they had to constantly keep upgrading their efforts and how they were optimizing the game to get onto Switch each time they released it and building off of that. And with their final uh, game, Sniper Elite 4, um, it's, they like put it on the Switch. It's like raw code form. And it was getting something like eight FPS on the GPU side. <laughs> and like, I don't know, like 18 FPS on the C, maybe even lower, like 12 FPS on the CPU side. And they, it was very interesting where they said, we know we can scale the GPU really far. We, you know, cut resolution, uh, take off effects, microcode enhancements, whatever. Um, but the CPU side is the literal game itself. So. This is where we're going to spend all our effort. And it was amazing to see them track all these little changes. They, like, they, they did like assembly compiler changes. They um, uh, was another one that they did, you know, like changing the way a lot of the things are done on the GPU. They went over from Vulkan with NVN extensions into being a pure uh, NVN game. And this is the lowest level API essentially that can be used on Switch. It's directly accessing a lot of uh, features of the Tegra hardware uh, that Vulkan really cannot do without these NVN extensions. Yeah, most games use this. Uh, NVN? On the Switch. Yeah. Oh, oh, okay. Well, it's it's pretty much like it's the it's the common one oh, that's, that almost every Switch game uses. It, I guess they must have really good uh, documentation for it because it, being a lower level API, you'd imagine that it would be. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I think so for yeah. sure. Um, but uh, they kind of tracked it through and the, this really cool development update and how they didn't want to focus on using DRS too much uh, because they wanted to keep the game clean. And, you know, it's just a really great presentation that I recommend everyone in the audience take a look at. And it was uh, also kind of fun because they do mention Digital Foundry at one point, and I got a good laugh about oh, that. Yeah. Yeah. I think they quoted uh, <laughs> Tom's review of what Sniper Elite 3 mm -hmm. was. Yeah, it was. I think it was it three or four. Three. Uh, but regardless, uh, it's, it, was it was three. three. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, 
Yeah, I really liked Sniper Elite when I played it on FPS Boost. I hadn't played it before. <laughs> but uh, the, yeah, the notion of that game being scaled down to a Switch is quite a remarkable achievement, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, well, that's that. Let's move on to the next topic. So, wow, where do we begin with this one? <laughs> I think we could, you know, if we kind of show this clip here, <laughs> which is the, tr- the traditional Sony interactive uh, splash screen that you see on Uncharted, Horizon Zero Dawn, all of the first-party juggernauts, and then it's running on an Xbox. It's MLB The Show 21, and um, huge controversy around this because it's a PlayStation Studios title that's running on Xbox One, Xbox Series consoles. Um, It came out day and date with the PlayStation uh, versions, and also... In a shock twist, Whoa. it was available on Game Pass on yeah. day one. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, I, you know, on the one hand, you could say that it's you know a bit of marketing genius, perhaps a bit of uh, uh, cross-platform banter, uh, you know, a, a bit of a marketing stunt, possibly because Microsoft has been going to town on it. Uh, I think we should probably talk a little bit about this. I've actually been looking at the game this week. The video is probably live by the time you see this. Um, there's going to be a lot of conception, uh, misconceptions, a lot of um, uh, kind of uh, arguments, needless arguments. I think it's pretty clear that MLB is the publisher of this. So Sony wouldn't have been involved in the decision to bring it to Xbox in the first place. They probably wouldn't have been involved in any decisions regarding Game Pass. Um, So I guess it comes down to the quality of the code. And what I discovered was pretty simple. It um, runs faster on PlayStation 5 compared to Series X by quite a margin. But it's not, I suspect, any kind of intent from the developer a specific intent because the xbox one x version runs significantly faster than playstation 4 pro in all cases graphics are identical it's a it's a tricky one what do you reckon about this john yeah there's been a lot of discussion about uh sort of parody lately especially with um certain statements from a leaked document which uh is kind of um the wording is very common from what I understand. So there's nothing strange there. I, I don't think the developers here have any intent to target one platform over the other in terms of like offering greater performance. I just think that's how it's shaken out with whatever efforts they've poured into this one. Um, mm. I'm sure that the thing about you, when you talk to developers, usually they want the game to run as best as it can on every platform that they ship on, right? right. Nobody wants to release a product that is lesser on one. And really, in this case, the difference is pretty small, I'd say. I mean, the gap in terms of actual measured performance during those replays specifically, you know, there is a, a, a notable percentage there. But as far as how the game itself plays, it's it's great on all platforms. Well, on both of those platforms, maybe not the lower end machines, but um, I, yeah. I what I what what I'm more curious about is what this meant for the development team because these guys traditionally have produced one version of the game uh, in recent years. Mm-hmm. I guess it's just been PlayStation Four, right? Mm-hmm. So this was the first year where all of a sudden they needed to up their engineering game and now target uh, not just PS4 but PS4, PS5, Xbox One, and Xbox Series consoles. And multiple variants of each. Uh, 
that I can imagine that added quite a bit of work to the development process for these guys. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think uh, fundamentally, I'm, you know, you're right. This is going to be their first multi-format project. They probably wouldn't have touched an Xbox development kit before. Exactly. So you know, I think one thing to sort of stress is that uh, the games business at the business level is entirely removed from the discourse at the fanboy level. <laughs> there yes. is there is no, you know, people out there, you know, who maybe are sort of invested in the, the sort of Twitter discussions might be thinking to themselves, why does Microsoft work with Digital Foundry when they hate their games? Or and, and equally, why does why does Sony work with Digital Foundry when they hate PlayStation games? The truth is that this is not reality. This is, no, you know, and, and similarly, when it comes to um, MLB, the show being developed cross-platform for the first time, it's pretty clear that they were aiming for parity. The visual makeup of the game yep. is entirely identical mm -hmm. uh, between uh, Xbox and PlayStation and in the respective console classes. So um, I w what I will say, though, is that, you know, you've got a bit of dual sense love. It's It's very minimal. There's 3D audio in there. The loading is a little bit faster on PlayStation. Uh, actually, the boot is lightning fast. But beyond that, it, you know, it's it's the same game. And I actually think that there's something more uh, curious and more fascinating to discuss here beyond platform comparisons, which is it's not so much a battle of consoles. It's a battle of business models. Mm. Um, yeah. When you're looking at... Um, uh, MLB the show on PlayStation. I've got to pay. I've got to pay full price, and indeed, I did pay full price. In fact, I had to pay seventy five pounds. <laughs> oh gosh! To, to play to play both versions the, to get the PS4 and the PS5 versions of the game. Yeah. they actually charged They're charged separate. extra for the cross gen pack, which really did rankle with me. Um, I have to tell you because it's pretty clear that this is the epitome of a cross gen title. You know, there's not that much in the way of enhancements on the next-gen machines. It's essentially resolution and frame rate. So to charge X, you know, extra for that is, um, you know, it didn't really go down particularly well with me. And then on the flip side, Game Pass, I can just download it on any Xbox, on any generation that I want, and I'm, I'm straight in. Yeah. This is especially true for sports games more than oh any other gosh, genre. Yes. Because sports games, like anybody that's buying classic games, you go to you go to anywhere, you're gonna find stacks and stacks of sports games for like a penny, ninety-nine cents, stuff like that. Like nobody wants these games after X amount of time has passed, and which is a little bit sad. Unless in some it's ways, Wayne Gretzky's you know, like, 3D hockey, am I right there, John? That's true. <laughs> like, who the heck or NBA Jam? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Who the heck wants to spend 75 pounds on a baseball game? I mean, okay, that, maybe I'm being a little bit harsh because I don't care. <laughs> well, yeah, I think that's that's the thing, John. It's basically um, it, only the diehards are going to be paying 60 or 75 pounds for the game, okay? Mm. Um, and what Game Pass is doing is basically radically expanding the scope of the audience for that yep. game. Now, there are questions to be asked about the sustainability of the Game Pass business model. That's the big question. And that's the, you know, um, again, you know, we know nothing about that. There's zero transparency, really, about whether this is sustainable or not in the long term. But in the short term, 
that game is going to get played a lot more, I suspect, on Xbox machines than it is on its original home, which is the PlayStation. Yeah. And I guess the question also is, why did it go multi-platform in the first place? And MLB. Um, yeah, MLB would have, uh, you know, been saying to themselves, well, hold on a minute here. You know, why is this game, why should this game be specific to PlayStation when there are a bunch of other platforms out there that could, you know, that would run the game just as well? Yeah. So maybe next yeah. year we'll get a Switch version. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. actually, so one thing I, that I did think about is um, this game is very similar visually between all generations, right? Mm-hmm. Like pretty the, much, yeah. And that's that's a little bit of a disappointment coming from something like uh, NBA, which is 2K, huge, yeah. Whatever you know, the most recent NBA Two K game that I looked at last year, mm-hmm. there was a dramatic visual increase going from the last gen to the current gen version i mean they even had a completely new ui and everything was completely radically altered between the two Uh, even if you know the core gameplay is very much the same uh, there was a lot of improvements and i was kind of expecting that here as well but it doesn't seem like that that's the case Mm -hmm. that's a shame i mean even fifa got i think fifa got a next yeah uh, extremely gorgeous hair features Mm -hmm. from frostbite so uh, it's a little bit disappointing in that sense. Well, I guess it depends on the budget of the title and the reach of the title and the sales of the title. Yeah, uh, FIFA's world. It is a very. I mean, MLB sells well. Yeah, but it? I mean, it's a big. But game. like FIFA, like the entire world plays football. Uh, yeah, there's like. I mean, FIFA, <laughs> yes, but like this is more like NBA uh, territory. Right. I feel. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, a really interesting project for me to work on, just because I was kind of curious to see what was going on there and to see how a PlayStation studio would handle an Xbox. <laughs> but um, yeah, you know, ultimately it's, it's you know, faster on PlayStation on the new generation, you know, and it's uh, slower on PlayStation in the old generation. So, you know, not really much you can draw conclusions wise there about developer motives or whatnot it's just a curious thing i guess mm-hmm. yep. um and that's that so let's talk about the final news item of the week uh apogee is back it says on the docket <laughs> and uh what is the significance of this john so it seems that and this is its own entity not connected to 3d realms which was also sort of connected to apogee back in the day but this is um apogee was sort of the one of the main drivers and i guess even the creator maybe of the shareware model back in the day on pcs or at least you know one of one of the one of the main founders of this or like essentially the idea back then was they would release let's say they build a game and it has like uh 30 levels you put out a shareware version that has maybe seven or eight levels so you get a large chunk of the game to play it um and then you can upgrade and buy the full version from there uh they they used this like crazy back in the day and apogee was apogee was basically known for delivering console like experiences on the pc at a time when the pc was barely capable of delivering such things um and that's what they kind of became known for i mean if you were into platformers shooters you know all this kind of stuff apogee had your back and they there's a lot of fun uh classic licenses and uh ip i guess that have been sort of like thrown in the closet for decades uh, post that era. And it looks like new Apogee has a couple goals. One, it looks like they're bringing back some of those games like Monster Bash 3D or Monster Bash 
I guess, is uh, getting a proper like remaster, not 3D HD, of course. That's what it's called, Monster Bash HD. There's also Raptor Call of the Shadows. It's become making a return. But then there's new stuff as well, and it sounds like they're going to be focusing on sort of digging up potentially interesting indie projects, maybe in a way similar to something like, I don't know, I, I just imagine like a Devolver Digital kind of publisher. And I think we need more like that, uh, that, that go for a certain kind of game, certain type of aesthetic, certain type of, you know, something. Um, and I'm very curious to see what they come up with. So um, Apogee, is it actually anybody who was directly involved with Apogee back in the day spearheading this? Or is yeah. it just like Scott? Oh, so it is. It's not just an IP grab. It's not, no. It's uh, It's got some original guys involved. So Nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even the, the trailer for it had like, uh, what's his name? John St. John? Uh, do- John St. John doing the, yeah. the, the introducing the brand back. He was the voice of Duke Nukem. Oh, yeah. So. Duke Nukem 3D, so. It's pretty cool. He came back to present that. So, you know, not, not much there to see. It's just, it's interesting and kind of fun to see them make that return, I guess. And anybody that was playing PC games in the early 90s is probably a little nostalgic for the yeah. Apogee games. I mean, I, I'm secretly hoping that there's some sort... I don't, I don't know what's going on with the Prey rights at the moment, but uh, I don't know. Let's see what maybe happens with Prey in the next five years. I would love to see... <laughs> Prey itself, yeah, the, like, the original Prey. Recreated as it was originally yeah. being developed. I would like that too. <laughs> Sounds like a job for Night Dive Studios. It does. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> but surely that would be all be tied up with uh, Bethesda now. Uh, yeah. Prey. Oh. Yeah. That's... Uh, yeah that's right that might be tricky then <laughs> well i guess you're going to be keeping an eye on that for us john so yes. if anything interesting happens we'll report back on that but i think that's it for the news this week so let's move on to discussing some of the stuff we've been working on this week um we can't actually discuss much <laughs> um we've talked about mlb the show we've talked about fps boost um a lot of the other stuff we're talking about yeah. well Alex, I want you to tease the project you're working on without giving away what it actually is, because uh, we kind of <laughs> teased it in the in the sort of production notes on the Patreon site this yeah, week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I guess I would say uh, it's something where I, I I really love the tech, I really love the game, and I really uh, want to spend the time making this video right. So it's one of those projects. And I think anyone who's come to DF and started watching our videos ever since I started uh, coming here will know it's a project that I really like. And if you can, you can probably guess along those lines. Uh, so it's something uh, I it's really like. It's funny though, you, you say that, but that all of our patrons were like, wait a minute, is it like Turok remade in the <laughs> yeah, You know, there's only, there's a limited selection of things that I like. Let's say I'm a man of particular tastes. Uh, yeah. Well, this opens up an interesting question, Alex. So what what if Chuok came to the cry engine? Uh, possibly possibly you could find a nano suit. <laughs> it would it... <laughs> within the, within the game. Oh, you... What what would be the ultimate Batalia fan service? That would that would be along the lines like the year, the year is 2009 and they've instead of making uh, Turok that really weird version of Turok uh, that they made when did that come out John like 2008 I want to say 2008. 2008 instead of making that they you know used CryEngine 2 at that time stripped out a lot of the 
modern crap and just uh, made an awesome Turok game. I would love that. That'd be, they could still do that now just uh, with the latest version of CryEngine. Why not? You know. Could, could there be such a thing as a, uh, a Crisis RTS? The, uh, yes, <laughs> there is. Ooh. I mean, technically, oh. there, well, yes, there's a lot of reasons, yes, but the, the Power Struggle multiplayer of Crisis 1, the CryEngine 2 game, uh, was actually essentially a first-person RTS. You would take over parts of the map, grab power, research upgrades, and uh, unlock new vehicles. It was essentially like a multiplayer RTS from the first-person perspective. Um, very different than like a Battlefield in that, uh, in that way because there's no kind of progression in those games. Uh, very mm. cool. Yes, someone should do it. <laughs> Dude, actually, more than that, I'd actually like to see a turn-based crisis. Uh, <laughs> like in the in the vein of maybe like XCOM? Uh, an XCOM yeah, style yeah, game. Yeah. Uh, like I feel like with the nano suit stuff, you'd have like the full squad Raptor team from the original Crisis. It starts in the plane, you land, <laughs> and then you all come together, and it's like you know, I feel like that would be really cool. And um, you'd lose like two of the squad members within the first ten minutes well, of the game. <laughs> it, could be, it could be like an alternate history where what would happen if you were in control of them? Ah, I'd like that. Well, I'm all in on the uh, on the crisis text adventure. Uh, if, if we if we're going really old school, yeah, I know I can read it. Be like, read it slow. Fifty bucks says this Rosenthal fellow ain't the reason we're here. What would yes. you like to respond with? It's yes. cold. Examine, really cold, you know. examine foliage that's running at half foliage. <laughs> oh. Oh. Anyway, uh, I think, you know, all I'm going to say about your content, which I'm really excited about, Alex, is that it's not crisis, which kind of just invalidates yeah. this entire conversation. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Um, but yeah, let's move on and talk about um, something that is content related. And it's something we've been trailing now for weeks, uh, but it is actually finally happening very, very soon, possibly even this week, which is we are going to be relaunching Patreon. We're going to be introducing new tiers. We're going to be introducing what I would say is a lot of fan service uh, to the people who really like what we do. And that's kind of something um, which I th I'd like, really like to talk about for a little while. So um, let's start by talking about the Discord that we've got, where basically a lot of people who have joined... There's a really positive, thriving community there of people who really yeah. like what we do. And uh, we talk to them on a daily basis. So, you know, if you want to get involved, get involved. But it's actually been a really good two-way exchange of ideas. And we haven't rushed this Patreon relaunch because we want it to be fan service. We want it to be uh, stuff that's going to be appealing to people. So, you know, our base tier is going to be uh, pretty much the same, except there will be more Patreon site posts. We're already seeing that, thanks to Audi. Uh, we are going to be having a, a, a higher um, tier, which will potentially open the door to early access. But I should stress that everything pretty much is still going to be appearing on the main channel. There might just be a time delay there. And of course, there's going to be much more in the way of interaction with the team. And we're already demonstrating the interaction with uh, the supporter Q&A section in this weekly show. And this weekly show only exists because of the, of the Patreon supports. Um, there's a lot going on there. And, and this has been really interesting to develop. We're going to be doing some behind the scenes content. So, you know, it's not actually stuff that's going to detract from 
other content appearing on the channel. It's going to be stuff that's happening in parallel. We just turn on the camera pretty much as we do for this direct. Well, I can finally know. show how I have my crazy setup. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe give some indication <laughs> yeah. on how all that works. <laughs> and, you know, that. There's, stuff that, there's stuff that we research behind the scenes. I've been doing a lot of stuff on AI upscaling. So mm -hmm. um, John set me the challenge of AI upscaling the Metal Gear Solid 2 trailer. That yep. will be appearing in the in the Patreon relaunch at some point. And um, yeah, a lot of interesting stuff happening there. And also, again, this two-way exchange of ideas. We were talking about um, our archive of stuff oh, um, yeah. that goes way back to, I think it starts around 12, 2009, 2010. But we've got a whole bunch of archive material from stuff that used to be used in our Eurogamer articles, uh, stuff that was used in embedded videos on Eurogamer that doesn't exist. We've got pristine quality versions of all of that stuff. And one of our Patreon supporters said, well, why don't you kind of remaster it? You know, give us the best quality of, of the old stuff. And I thought to myself, well, this is something that is actually very easy to do, that would have value, that would actually preserve our archive and share it. Yeah, that would so be this cool, especially because like, up until I can't remember the year, but YouTube didn't support 60 frames per second. For playback. sure. And also yep. the 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 bit rate on those older YouTube videos is atrocious. <sighs> so yep. yeah. the quality yeah. is very bad. Exactly. Yeah. So this is something else that we can provide to to supporters that's I think is going to go down really well. And it's also great for us to dig back into the archives and take out uh, some of those uh uh, key games that you know i was looking at the hard drive collection the other day i saw final fantasy 13 on <laughs> playstation 3 and 360 wow that was a, a hornet's nest back in the day um but those assets were never actually shown in decent quality so uh, you know we can we can do that and i'm really excited by all of the stuff that we've got uh, lined up for this sort of premium tier but it is all about um connecting with our biggest fans and at the same time also opening the door to producing projects that um, may not be commercially viable in the current atmosphere you know on the YouTube ecosystem but do become a lot more viable when we have Patreon support so um, I think last week we were talking about tech focus. Yeah, yeah. So like tech focus can be popular but it can also not be depending on yeah. the topic so uh, Patreon supporters who have a keen interest in the technology and less about, you know, just uh, the relevance to the latest game that released, uh, they, they're really interested in these things. And I'm really grateful that essentially through the Patreon tiers and all these other things that I'll be enabled to work on uh, tech focus projects in the near future and also in the next coming months to years that I otherwise probably would not have had the time, let alone the energy or all these other things to work on. But, you know, this like buffer that Patreon gives us is just amazing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The other thing, of course, is that um, uh, extra funds coming in means that we can actually go on the search for new contributors um, to do stuff that uh, is kind of like DF staples that maybe we don't uh, do enough of. You know, for example, we don't cover every single PlayStation 5 release. I don't think we'd want to cover every single PlayStation 5 release, but there are certainly um, titles that we miss, that we kind of we kind of regret not doing. I mean, at the moment, I'm trying to find uh, space for... 
um, which has just had a Series X uh, slash S update, and I think it's already got a PS5 one. I'd love to cover that, but it's a case of finding the time to do it. And if we've got more contributors on board and more funds coming in to pay those contributors, then that makes that possible. But I think the thing that's, I think, going to really excite a lot of people, and it kind of ties into the project you're working on now, John, is that we're also going to have a... Um, DF Retro tier, which was is basically going to radically revamp what we're doing with Retro on the channel. Yeah, and that's, you know, I hope people enjoy that because for me, that's something I've been wanting to do more of because especially in the past year with the new consoles, I haven't had a chance to do nearly as many, like, real episodes in that series. Yeah. So it's been to the point where I think, like, you know, it's just a small handful of them last year. Mm-hmm. And going forward, you know, the idea for me at least is I want to start doing one big episode a month in addition to various other things such as the DF pickup stuff, you know, some let's plays with Audi, you know, obviously we'll continue to have some streams uh, and various other stuff like that that we have in the works. And it's basically a chance to do more of what I love. And I think uh, there's, there seems to be a, a decent number of people out there that also enjoy the retro stuff. Yes. So I'm very happy and grateful for that because mm. oh. This is what's really exciting. I, I just, like, I yeah. just really want to quickly hype this, but I know what John's working on, and I almost, I, I actually did get a tear in my eye when I watched a little bit should, of it. Should we say it? Should this what it is? I mean, um, let's keep it under wraps <laughs> for now. Uh, all right, it, it was all right. mind blowing. Let's just say that. Well, it makes a lot of sense for this channel. <laughs> yeah. We'll just say, uh, and I've even, uh, yeah, it's. We'll see. I'm excited to to finally get that out. And I have some other huge projects <laughs> in the works. And obviously now that Audie's working with us, he can help more mm-hmm. with like getting this stuff off the ground since he's always a great teammate uh, for for doing this kind of content. So yeah, um, yeah, I that, think that's basically is, the, the the thing for me. And it is worth stressing that this is you know basically being enabled because we've got support from people that love what we do yeah. and want to see more of it. Exactly. And it's also great for us because it enables us to diversify what we do and um, makes us happier doing our jobs, which is uh, precisely pretty crucial because, it you know, anybody who works on a YouTube channel uh, or, or reads the discourse surrounding it will know just how difficult it is. Mm-hmm. And oh, it, yeah. it can be a real grind. So the idea is really to um, start a much deeper relationship with our best and most committed fans. And again, you know, just go to our Discord, see what's happening there. And uh, there's a ton of stuff happening. It's just a fantastic atmosphere, a really good um, sense of give and take in terms of ideas and stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's just been a joy to actually sort of be revitalized in a way by yeah. uh, some of that stuff. And, and just one last thing to talk about the Discord is that I've gotten a lot of uh, DMs through the Discord, or I've gotten a lot of uh, kind of direct mess, just like direct messages on the channel, which have helped our work become more accurate and more topical, and uh, even like just allowed me to uh, essentially get uh, an understanding of what's happening in the world because I can't read every single news source all the time. But if someone tags exactly. me yep. uh, with something that, Alex, this seems really relevant to your interests. Uh, well, this is great. And I'm really grateful for that. So thank you, everyone on the yep. Discord. Mm-hmm. Exactly. But yeah, I just want to get back to the concept. I mean, when I started in the games business, um, I was in magazines. You'd go to your uh, local shop, you'd buy your magazine, 
and the magazine would have ad- advertisements <coughs> just as YouTube has advertisements now. But fundamentally, you bought the magazine because you liked the content, you liked the authors, you got great information from it. Uh, the transition onto the internet has basically made all of that free, which has really shaken up the way things work. Mm-hmm. And um, slowly but surely, I think we're kind of transitioning back to a similar model to what we had in the past, where support where supporters are um, supporting their favorite creators. And um, I'm really hopeful that we can do something uh, meaningful there that's just going to be great for our supporters and great for us too. But look out for that. We're going to be doing a video explaining everything there. We shall reveal John's mystery uh, project. <laughs> um, Alex's mystery video isn't related to the Patreon, but it's huge. It's a global exclusive. I'm hugely excited about mm-hmm. it. And uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to the next week. But I think that's our content discussion for now. So let's move on to, and it's quite appropriate, Patreon Q&A. Okay, so first question here from Ben Skelly. New patron here. Last week, Alex mentioned how manual placing of light sources is labor intensive. How hard is ray tracing to implement for smaller studios or even indies? Do the consoles or major commercial engines have APIs slash tools to make it easier? Uh, I, I, I almost feel like I shouldn't be answering this question, but the developers should. And you can watch a... Uh, essentially, it was like RTX or AAA for Indies, it was called. I think it was at the GTC conference. You may have to sign up for the website, for the GTC website register, but it doesn't actually require anything other than a registration to watch the video. And they had a panel of about, I want to say, six different indie developers working with uh, middleware engines, so something like Unreal or Unity, discussing about how uh, essentially things like DLSS or uh, ray tracing features enabled their project in some way. And usually it's about actually the speed of the project increasing or the fidelity of the project increasing. They could answer it much better than I would. But just on a theoretical level, I do think it makes a lot of sense that it is easier because instead of having to go in, place a light or a reflection probe or spend an hour baking a shadow or something like that in a scene, it would happen dynamically, systemically, and in real time, maybe to an even higher level of fidelity. That's kind of what the idea behind ray tracing is. And yes, uh, the APIs or tools that make this easier are basically common sense uh, because ray tracing works on physical principles, like you would, uh, like when you adjust a light in your own room. That's what makes it easy. They don't actually need necessarily always an API or something like that in a, in a middleware engine to explain how ray tracing works. Um, but the thing that they have to worry about, and this is the harder part, and I still think developers are getting, uh, again, it's gonna take a bit of time, but they need some way to profile the game. It's, the, the placing the light is the easy part now. Profiling the game to see where the kind of performance budget is being spent uh, in the ray tracing, is very important. Uh, it can be very counterintuitive why, especially across different hardware vendors, why uh, ray tracing is slow in this scene, but not in another. And that's something uh, that NVIDIA, AMD, and the, I guess, the middleware engines also need to get better at about kind of informing the person turning on ray tracing why it's expensive here and not expensive there. Um, so mm. I hope maybe this answers your question a bit, but I definitely do recommend checking out that GTC video that I mentioned. 
Yeah, I mean, we've already got a situation with Unreal Engine 4 where um, Mortal Shell got ray tracing and DLSS simply because it's built into the engine. That's a really small end, uh, developer there who's you know can tap into those those features. Um, yeah, interesting stuff there. Um, next question. Again, I think you might be best suited for this one, Alex, from Adrian. Hello, he says. My question is this. Is there any particular reason why DRS is usually absent on PC? Dynamic resolution scaling, that is, of course. When a game's console counterpart has an implementation of it, take Crisis Remastered and Neo 101 and 2, for example. Just a curious thought. Thanks. There's a, the one technical reason for this is that um, there's currently no way in DirectX or Windows to have a great understanding of events out of the control of the game that could come in and adjust, like let's say, the CPU or GPU time for one frame. And that is something developers, I think, just on an ide ideological or conceptual level don't like. So they don't want to implement necessarily the same DRS system they have on console because if one of these events from the background comes in and adjusts the frame time of one single frame, it could adjust the dynamic res for that frame in a way that they're not happy with. They want more control. Um, and I think that's one of the reason why, usually. Uh, that's one mm. of them, but there are technical ways around this. Uh, Intel put out a presentation a couple of years ago about like leaving like a GPU marker or something like that, where you have a really good understanding of what's actually happening in the Windows environment. Uh, other obviously, there's a lot of really great successful examples: Gears of War, uh, Titanfall, with like an absolutely amazing DRS system on PC. Uh, so it is oh, yeah, it's 100% right. doable. Uh, it's just like I think there's a level of like ideological worry on the one side, and another difference too, I think is actually just platform differences of what they think users like. Um, and it's another, you know, they don't think PC users like the idea of scaling because they're closer to the screen or something like that. Or, you know, maybe they also think it's just another option in the menu that we'll have to QA about. There's development resources there. I think actually on a really hardcore technical level, it's really doable and we already have great examples of it, but then it becomes more of a production standpoint uh, question. Like, do we want this for our PC users? Do we want to spend the time developing it right? All these other things, you know? Mm, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's also an interesting point in that uh, typically for a console game, they would be tailoring DRS to 30 or 60 frames per yeah. second. Mm -hmm. Whereas on PC, you really have to sort of expand the remit almost to, I mean, to cover the high PC, frame rate. When they have that, they usually have sort of a slider to set sort of your target. Which I like rate, a lot. Right? Yeah. Where it's like, which is great. It's like, okay, I want to hit 120, so adjust the scaler to, to work for this value. Mm -hmm. But yeah. Yeah, going completely from memory here, and I might be wrong, but I did ask this question to Bungie when they produced Destiny 2 on PC. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think they, were, they mentioned, again, I can't say for sure there were some sort of memory management issues as well hmm. that they had to factor I, in. I, yeah, like uh, we saw this with Far Cry 5 on PC, if you remember, Rich, uh, where turning on DRS technically requires uh, a lot more previous frames to be usually in the memory and things like that. So that can balloon out memory considerations and you know they don't want to worry about it if it's like pressuring their texture memory or something like that. So maybe that's another reason why, but yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, well, let's move on. Next question from Stephen, and uh, might be a good one for you, John. Once VRR is real, stressed, on PlayStation 5 and common in TVs, 
would it be best for developers to make all the games have unlocked frame rates and just run VRR? Uh, I think the, I think the answer is simple. We need options essentially because you can't assume that all users will have this feature even when it becomes more common. Um, so I think you know, I think the big thing is going forward there should always be an option to sort of let the frame rate run free, so to speak, up to a limit because you know if you're ranging from like 40 to 120 frames per second even with VRR that that's not great. That causes a lot of other issues, but. You know, yeah, I, I would like to see uncapped frame rates more often as an option specifically targeting VRR displays because, you know, 45 to 60 FPS looks terrible on a non-VRR display, in my opinion. Uh, but with VRR, it looks phenomenal. So, like, mm. you know, if you can't hit that without VRR, then you should have at least provide the user an option to cap the frame rate to, say, 30 FPS or something like that instance uh, well, let's, it really is just about options well let's consider something like forza motorsport where um uh they target that game to run locked at 60 frames per second and there's a huge amount of engineering effort that goes into making sure that it never effectively never drops a frame on a console do you think that there's the danger if by relying on vrr that it might actually uh just I don't oh, know. Yeah, I, I've worried about this as well. And I, you're right. There is this fear of using something like VRR as a, a crutch. crutch so exactly, yeah. Exactly. Um, and that's obviously going to vary depending per developer, I would imagine, in terms of what what they're targeting. So I don't know if there's any real blanket statement there, but there, I could see a scenario where that might occur, where you could see, well, we don't have the time, budget, or manpower to further optimize this so we'll just rely on vrr to sort of pick up the slack yeah mm. i think one like, that would be tempting i'd imagine i think one thing that would happen is if as soon as like a lot of frame locks are gone either either from 30 or 60 you would see a lot of engines have really poor frame health like where i would say uh yes uh so think about vsync like it's drop if you're at 60 it's at 16.6 ms uh, at 60 hertz, uh, but then 33.3 is the next one it can actually drop down to for 30 FPS. Uh, in between there, there's actually a lot of you know values that a frame could be produced at. Uh, I, I think with a lot yeah. of engines, sometimes when you unlock the frame rate, there's actually a lot of frames that are a lot longer than others, but VSync hides it well enough where you just think, oh, it's one frame yeah. drop or something like that, uh, or mm. it's not even showing up. So I, I think also VRR, if they just left frame rates unlocked at times, we would see like people really complaining about the way games look, uh, like because they're like really jittery or have more weirdness than they might have expected. I think unlocking I the frame rate would have to be like up to a specific cap, I would say, depending on your target. Like if you're like in the forty to sixty range most of the time, I think it's okay to have an uncapped frame rate up to sixty hertz. Uh, but like removing that cap entirely and allowing it to go all the way to 120, then yeah, you probably get a lot of um, inconsistencies in those frame times, which you would still notice uh, with VRR. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's move on to the next question from Paul Pasta. Uh, was there ever a video you released that you feared was too niche for your general audience, but ended up exceeding your expectations in reception or view count? I think the answer is yes. And John, what do you <laughs> oh, reckon? Man. That's difficult. I'm sure there was some really good answers for this. But the first one that comes to mind is something like 
when we did a video on the CDI. Yeah. And it actually did pretty well. <laughs> Defined pretty well. <laughs> it was like about 90,000 views. What? That's good. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty good for a CDI video. Come on now. <laughs> <laughs> um, there are some ones that, that do spring to mind. Um, remember that Sonic 2 HD one that you did, John? Oh, yeah, that one. I don't I remember mean, the last that. time I looked, that w- Well, why don't you talk about it for a bit, John? What, what was the content yeah, there? If I recall, that was um, looking at Sonic 2 HD and also possibly the PC conversion of Sonic 06 or something. One of those... I, I was just looking at, at Sonic games sort of being refreshed in the PC, and that did extremely well. Mm. Uh, along those same lines was that video we did on uh, the Halo 2 uh, E3 Oh, yeah, right? right. Yeah, that, that one's huge, Where, actually. Uh, just kind of looking back at the at, at the trailer and the realities of it and what the final game ended up shipping with and comparing the two, and uh, that really went over well. People liked that. And also maybe, I guess... When we did those uh, E3 conference videos, which we should do more of, by the way, um, the f- especially that first one I think we did on the was it 2006? One, I think? 2006. Yeah, that was that was great because we were actually all in the same room together, <laughs> and it was Alex's yeah. first real contribution, really. That's right. Yeah. Uh-huh. So yeah, that is that's one's very special in my heart. Um, yeah, videos that were too niche. Um, hmm. I think um, there were videos that where there's a certain content type that doesn't generally tend to do well. So developer interviews, Mm. um, they can either do quite well. um, They can just not really shift the needle at all, but then sometimes something big will happen. And I think one thing that really uh, made me do a double take and made me kind of punch the air in joy was um, uh, the DF developers about Ori and the Will of the Wisps where um, the last time I looked at it, it was like on 195,000 views. And I went, I just sent a message to John on Slack saying, John, have you seen this? This is amazing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was like, wow. But, you know, that that is a, a really good, uh, I mean, we didn't expect huge views for that, but a lot of love and effort, not just from John, um, but also from Moon Studios. That content oh, yeah. was awesome. And I'm just really glad that it did find a, an audience. But did I fear that it was too niche for the general audience? Absolutely, yeah. And I think also when we started to um, do the DF Weekly Direct, it's like, well, you know, are people going to hang around and <laughs> listen to or watch us for 90 minutes just talking about stuff that we fancy talking about? And that's done, uh, uh, sort of exceeded my expectations as well. So I'm really grateful about that. Anything on your your perspective, Alex? I guess the, a couple of tech focus things follow fall under this, but uh, of the, you know not looking at those. Uh, sometimes they do better, sometimes they do worse. Um, the one that I think of is when I did Command and Conquer Remastered last year. I thought, for one, everyone always says RTS is dead. It was destroyed by MOBAs and then destroyed by esports. <laughs> you know, there's no huge RTS games coming out since like 2000. Eight almost, uh, 2009, 2010. That's like the last really big ones that like mainstream gaming press got on. I'm talking about really mainstream gaming press. Uh, and then that comes out, and I thought it would do a small 
number and I would be kind of wasting my time a little bit on the video, even though I loved the video and I loved the game. I thought it would just be like, oh, it comes out and kind of like a, a remaster of some other game from the 90s. This is just watched by a few people, but it like really picked up. And I think that one right there was just the, the, the for some reason, the upgrade was so obvious and so nice that it looked really good. And also, it sounds weird, but the video was really tight. The way I edited it, it was like, a, I think it was like 12 minutes long or something like that. It's not even very long mm. of a video covering a remaster of a game. Uh, but I think the kind of like soundbite level of the video where it was just like, this is what it is. This is how good it looks. This is what it does. Um, I think that helped a lot instead of being meandering. And I can, uh, I can, I can talk at length for a lot of things. Yeah. Good stuff. <laughs> well, next question, Oliver McKenzie. It's a long question. It's got two paragraphs. What's going on here? <laughs> uh, do you think we will see image reconstruction solutions that are comparable to DLSS on next-gen consoles? Uh, DLSS can generate high-quality, high-resolution yeah. images for a fraction of the cost of native rendering. Yes, we know that. Uh, obviously, the consoles don't have dedicated machine learning hardware, but do you think running ML on the shaders would be viable for a similar technique? Or do you think non-ML solutions, uh, we suspect it's non-ML anyway, like uh, AMD Super Resolution, or do you think non-ML solutions like AMD's Fidelity Effects Super Resolution or checkerboarding or upsampling will be competitive with DLSS? Alex. Okay, do I think they'll be comparable? A lot of things can be compared. So yes, they will be comparable. <laughs> um, but I do think one of the reasons why DLSS is so good is because they're using like lower level int8 ML instructions on the GPU that are really, really fast on you know, RTX GPUs due to the tensor course. I think that is one thing that makes it extremely viable on RTX GPUs. I do think that even uh, with not having tensor cores in the consoles, I do think something like Xbox Series X's uh, machine learning uh, acceleration, even though much less, will offer a competitive technique that will be good and they will actually want to leverage ML with it because it solves certain problems that are really good. Uh, it'll just be a tiny bit slower or have less detail in certain aspects. That's essentially what I imagine. In the other aspect of this question, uh, whether or not something not using ML uh, will do just as good. The thing is, I, I don't know really if that's possible at the current rate because it would require a lot of investment, uh, just like from a research standpoint, to make something that doesn't work with every game out there. Um, DLSS is like, due to the research behind it and the way it trains now, it's like game agnostic. And uh, since it applies, at the level of TAA, it's really friendly to modern engines. I think a competitive solution would need the same amount of research time and broad applicability to be competitive. Uh, and I don't think things like checkerboarding offer that. And typical TAA upsampling techniques, uh, they require some sort of level of like super tuning for game content. Uh, sometimes, or even artist content that DLSS usually will actually just work around by the nature of it being ML-based uh, for certain aspects. Mm. So I don't think so, and I definitely don't think checkerboarding because actually I wanna say this really quickly just because uh, checkerboarding is really great, but I think it's almost like a bit of history at this point because the ideas behind it um, and the way it fails is particular 
And I don't like its fail case. Like when checkerboard has a fail case, it leaves uh, the checkerboard artifact, artifact across the image. Uh, when something like TAA upsampling fails, it just looks lower res. And I think that is something that developers prefer as well. I do think we're going to see a lot less checkerboarding over time for image reconstruction. It'll still be used, though, for things like denoising or uh, checkerboard patterns for SSR or something like that. Uh, but I, I think the future is for image reconstruction. It is in machine learning some aspect of the reconstruction algorithm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I'm going to be fascinated to see how this plays out because we know Microsoft is working on something. Uh, the extent to which we're actually going to see something and yeah. how good it's going to look, we just don't know. Uh, but yeah, big question there. And essentially, your answer, Alex, is no. Yeah, it is a little bit of a no, just because, I don't know, <laughs> yep. there's, there's, it just requires so much investment and energy to make these things look good. And NVIDIA has had the time and energy and money to do it. So, mm. Mm, yeah, but you know, again, I'll just say the Insomniac temporal upsampling solution really does look good. I guess the question is really, um, is that a, a sort of engine or, or content specific uh, technique that that just works well with that specific art style and that specific engine, but I guess the uh, uh, the techniques that are being used for temporal upsampling are just kind of universal. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I, I think they are pretty universal, and I think yeah. the, 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 to say it's really good. I mean, it produces an image that we enjoy. But to say uh, something is actually good, like effective from a research angle, would be to put it next to the uh, raw 4K version of it, and then a super sampled version of it, and say what it is, uh, how, it, how effective it is. That's what they do with DLSS and all these other image uh, reconstruction techniques. So one thing I would actually like to see would be Spider-Man uh, upscaled with different techniques <laughs> to, see, to see how it fares uh, and how it looks, or if it looks better or worse, and all these things. So. Yeah, I guess that was the thing, because with DLSS, I think it was the uh, Neo video, which kind of comprehensively uh, sort of demonstrated that it is actually on par, if not better than native rendering. And yep. it's not basically just a better um, uh, rendition of TAA, mm -hmm. if you see what I yeah, mean. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's come yeah. a long way because the older iterations of DLSS. Yep. We're definitely not there, so they've continued to refine an improvement, and it's in a remarkably great spot. Yeah, mm -hmm. happy with it. Yeah. Okay, final question from Daniel Foss. Who came up with the name Digital Foundry? I think that one's fairly simple. <laughs> uh, what, <laughs> what was the inspiration for the name? Well, I came up with the name Digital Foundry because I founded the company uh, in late 2003, I believe. Uh, the inspiration for the name... It's really simple. I couldn't call it Digital Forge uh, <laughs> because that was the original name I wanted to come up with. But it was because at the time we have to kind of remember that Digital Foundry wasn't anything to do with what we're doing today. It was a company I put together for um, uh, broadcast solutions, um, you know, bespoke DVDs, bespoke videos, that kind of thing. The name kind of makes a bit more sense for that. And it just kind yeah. of persisted into when we were doing um, our initial platform comparisons and uh, uh, the bespoke capture solutions we used way back then. So that's kind of the origins of, of the name. But I can see there's quite a lot of something, maybe something we'll do in the Patreon where we'll talk about the origins of Digital Foundry, because there is still some 
uh, material from way back then that we can we can actually show, which might prove interesting. But I guess that's it for this show. Um, thanks for joining me on this one, John. Of course. <laughs> we can all get back to work now, but it's been nice to meet up with you guys for the morning. And thanks to you, Alex. Of course, there, Rich. And uh, yeah, that door, it's got to be opened at some point. You know, yeah. what's going on down behind we'll there? See, we'll see what happens in about a week or two. Uh, Hord, maybe, hordes maybe of frogs in there. Hordes <laughs> of majestic wildebeest. Uh, we'll see. In the background there. We'll have to see. Maybe that could be a Patreon exclusive. Anyway, <laughs> we're going to wrap this up for now. If you did like the content, please like, subscribe, and indeed share. Uh, ring the bell for instant notifications whenever new digital foundry content drops. And uh, yes, please do consider the Patreon um, and we'll have more on that soon. But that's all from us for now. Thanks for watching.